My name is Jo Wise and this is Wise Women, a podcast released on the full moon where I ask women to share the wisdom they found in their greatest life challenges. And new for this series, I also ask them to name the men that supported them through their darkest moments. This podcast is released every full moon because in ancient times, our female ancestors would synchronize their cycles with the cycles of the moon to make their connection, their creativity, their cleansing even more powerful. And the full moon is a wonderful time for communication and expression. My hope with these podcasts is that the story you're about to hear brings healing to the woman who's sharing it, knowing it's being heard by her sisters, but that parts of the story may resonate with your experiences and bring healing to you as well. Welcome to a brand new series of Wise Women. My first guest is international meditation teacher and author Sally Kempton, who Elizabeth Gilbert, the writer of Eat, Pray, Love, calls one of the best meditation teachers on the planet. Sally's story is quite unusual in that she talks about living in an ashram with her guru and her difficult decision to leave. But her story is also an utterly relatable account of a woman who knew she had to leave her life as she knew it to allow the next chapter of her life to unfold. The thing I love about Sally's story is how practical her wisdom is. She spent months, if not years, preparing to make her exit as smooth as possible. If you're facing a big life transition at the moment, or you want guidance on how to manage the next one, keep listening. I hope you enjoy a story. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please do leave your reviews about Wise Women, as they will help other women to find these conversations. Hi, how are you, Joe? Very well. Thanks for joining uh, us here on this podcast, Wise Women. I've got so much to ask you, but before we even start talking, I wonder if you would just spend a few very short minutes helping everyone to settle. Perhaps you could lead a very short meditation so that we're all completely present for this conversation. Uh, The reason I'm asking that is in your book, Meditation for the Love of It, you have a chapter on preparing to meditate. And actually, I'm a big believer in preparing for a conversation like this as well. Yeah, for sure. So please just take a moment to find your seat. And the way I like to do it myself is to feel, to recognize that there is a triangle consisting of the pubic bone and the two sits bones. And if you become aware of the, of the sits bones meeting the seat, the triangle in front of it, and your head is poised in the, spa- in the inner space of the triangle. And if you can find that, feel the, the, the weight of your sits bones and buttocks on the seat, and then inhale downward and exhale upward to the heart. And just spend a couple of moments letting the breath flow in and down towards the base of the body, up towards the heart. Amazing. Yeah, I can feel that. And I I feel centered for the conversation, which is exactly what I wanted to achieve. Right, right. Now, the challenge we're going to talk to you about today, Sally, is how you started a 
you started a public career at the age of 60 after leaving the spiritual community you'd called home for decades. However, before we get to that, we do need to backtrack a bit first because you actually started out after leaving college as a journalist and spirituality was the last thing on your agenda. So can you give me a potted version of how you ended up um, not only meeting your guru, but becoming his full-time student and also his press secretary and the editor of his books as well. Yes, of course. I'm going to try to do this crisply. You know, I, this all happened in the in around 1970, which it, if you were my age, you would remember, most people don't, that it, it was really the moment when the left in the United States crashed and burned after the 1968 election. So Nixon was on the throne, as it were, I, everyone I knew was kind of in despair about politics. And um, most of us were turning to some form of inner work. So I was, um, I took acid one day with my boyfriend. And in the middle of that, uh, that journey, it became utterly apparent to me that the entire universe is made of love. So, so and I turned to my boyfriend, I said, there's nothing but love. He said, haven't you ever taken acid before? And at that moment, I experienced an absolute radical separation between life as I knew it and the life I wanted. You know, that, in other words, my, the people in my world didn't get this. And then a bunch of stuff happened. My, my brother and his wife died, which was, of course, a really big deal because they were my best friends. And about six months later, actually, you know, a year later, I had this kind of recognition that I could not go on living in this karmic wheel anymore. And in order to reset my life, I got involved with a Western spiritual group, which was run by a very smart uh, Bolivian guy who, who essentially gave me a, what I consider one of the best spiritual educations you could ever get. At, in in the course of that, I you know I think I was with them for a year and a half. Year and a half later, I had a very very radical new spiritual awakening in a workshop with a Tibetan teacher, in which I you know through his instruction I went into a pure witness state, and subsequently a few months later, a few days later, realized that my Kundalini had awakened. So in the middle of one of those moments. In meditation, the name of my guru, Swami Muktananda, arose in my mind. And mostly because nobody could tell me what to do about my awake Kundalini, I went to see him. I walked into the room. He was a, a very compelling figure. You know, an Indian man wearing orange clothes and sunglasses. He looked like Dizzy Gillespie. If anyone who met him said he was... No, he didn't speak English, and he was an absolutely traditional yogi. He just exuded an air that I identified with hipness, which was a big value for me at the time. But anyway, I walked into the room. This voice came up which said, this is why I was born. And though I, I didn't realize it at the moment, the feeling was that I had been born to serve him. And long story short, I ended up joining his circus, he was on a tour of the of the um, of the United States, and this was 1974, and it definitely was a circus. 
as his press secretary, you know, I had this journalist experience, which basically gave me, I would say, a ticket. Uh, he just took care of me for the next eight years. I, I had no money. He supported me uh, to the extent of food and sh- food and shelter, pretty much nothing else. But it allowed me to do a very, very deep dive. But the main the main um, training that I got in teach in the teachings was in in the fact that he made me sit next to him and take notes on his talks, and then. I ended up editing about eight books for him and really immersing myself in his teachings so that they came into my consciousness. I'm really pickled in his teachings. He died in 1982. I ended up staying for 20 years and serving his successor, who is in many ways a, a very profound teacher. And then at a certain point, it became clear to me that I was a writer and that I, and that I, I could not get out of this life without without writing this book on meditation, which was at the time called The Heart of Meditation. So um, I just started to write the book. I wrote it. Took me about a, took me about two years because I did. I made a few false starts. So that brings me up to the moment of leaving the ashram. Well, before you talk about leaving the ashram, Sally, can you talk? a little bit more about what it was like living in that, I think you've called it a tradition of obedience. What what was it like living as that Swami with your teacher and devoting yourself every day to essentially truth? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, there's several things I'm extraordinarily grateful for. One was it gave me a work ethic. I mean, working for Muktananda and then for his successor, was demanding in a way that I was willing to accept that I hadn't been willing to accept as a journalist. I just didn't seem that interesting or relevant to work hard just to become successful in a profession. So because I wanted to be there so badly, uh, I learned how to, how to work for 18 hours a day, which, although not necessarily a good thing to do for your whole life, is really, really helpful when you're, you know, trying to accomplish something. So that was a huge gift. The second gift was, which I can't stress enough, was the atmosphere there, which was quite harsh in a psychological way, partly because of the the way Indian gurus are expected to behave. You know, that it's not a culture that that recognizes gentleness as a good quality in a teacher. So there was a lot of um, but always in an atmosphere of just incredible love. I, the thing that drew me to him was really recognizing that love that I had felt in my first experience, which, which was pretty much his, his deepest transmission. He was an unbelievable atomic energy force of love. And then, you know, and then the third one was space to practice uh, and an atmosphere in which basically the endless conversation about spiritual topics, you know, it was like the best satsang you can imagine. So it was great for a long time, but it was psychologically and emotionally quite painful, but spiritually extraordinary. It is, it's an extremely powerful path if you can do it. Hmm. And it is all about, all right, I think what you said is completely stupid, but I'm going to do it anyway because you said it. (laughs) 
And it's kind of an amazing thing. It's a very good training for life. Uh, because, you know, it's, I've always said that if you're going to be a spiritual teacher and you don't have a guru, then life itself is going to destroy your ego one way or the other. Yeah. As you see from all of the gurus who, who are doing really good work and suddenly they do something transgressive and, and, they're, and they're smashed in its context that's not safe, you know, mm. a context that wrecks your community, essentially. So... I'm very glad that I, that I got the training in such a safe conduct. Um, but what actually pushed me out was, was this feeling that I was teaching as a monk, I was teaching householders, you know, people who had bills to pay, kids, kids to bring up, you know, diseases, money problems, all the, all the, the stuff of your life. And I didn't have those problems. You know, I was like, I was living in a situation of utter privilege and that in order to teach with integrity, I just had to get out of there and be on the level that other people were. So that was, I think that was really the final thing. Yeah. And I want to ask you more about your leaving in a second, but in your book, I'm pretty sure it's meditation for the love of it. You explain what the word guru actually means can you explain it for us now because i loved your explanation of it yeah i i would say that the guru is a lot of things you know if you have a relationship with a guru a guru is a a teacher so the guru is a kind of repository of the wisdom of their tradition and they pass that on to you verbally and and one-on-one but Guru is a kind of icon for the energy of the highest consciousness. So when someone is fully enlightened, what they transmit to you is that experience of full enlightenment. But it isn't the guru who's doing the transmission. The the basic teaching in the tantric tradition is that guru is a cosmic function, the cosmic function of grace. And it's whenever you experience that transmission from another person, from a teacher, it's coming from it's coming from that level, from the highest level of consciousness. So when the Buddhists say, you know, always look on the guru as totally pure, always look on the guru as the Buddha, what they're talking about is not that you should imagine that the guru is a perfect human being with no flaws, but to remember that the real guru is that that level of awareness, which is utterly pure and transcendent. Yes. And did I read in your book uh, that if you break down guru in Sanskrit, it means lightness and darkness? Yeah, gu is light, ru is dark. So that, so the what the etymological you know translation is guru is the one who takes you from darkness to light. Another meaning of guru is heavy. <laughs> wow. you know, the, the planet Jupiter is called guru. Um, so guru is a guru is a guru is a big energy. You know, oh my goodness! Not everybody not everybody is comfortable with that energy because it's it's heavy. Yes, you know? I completely get that. Okay, so let's get back to your story. So. The challenge that you're talking about today was the fact that you left this ashram that you'd been part of for decades. You've 
just talked us through up to the point of now deciding to leave the ashram. That must have been such a huge decision for you, Sally, having invested so much of your life in it. Was it really strange? You know, the day you came out, I'm thinking of, you know, when people leave the army for the first time, when people leave, you know, prison for the first time. Did it feel like that? Did you feel like, oh, my God, I'm not even sure who I am in this world? Well, I, you know, I'm a very, I'm a cautious, fear-based person. So uh, I just, got, I realized this about five years before I actually left, maybe even more. And, and the idea of coming out of this, this world, which had been my entire world on every level, I had no idea where I would go or who, what I would do or, you know, so I actually spent five years learning how to, I, getting, I got a driver's license. I, I learned how to navigate in a strange place. I got a credit card and I started seeing old friends. So I actually, I actually spent quite a bit of time reintegrating myself into the, into the world, which I felt could support me. Mm. Um, before I, before I actually started initiating pathways. And honestly, when I wrote the book, along with my desire to express myself, there was a very strong realization that if I was going to be a spiritual teacher when I came out, I was going to need a book. You know, I mean, I'd spent 30 years being in, you know, completely unknown in the spiritual world. I was going to come out and I was, I was going to present myself as a person that people could come to to learn meditation from who was skillful enough to teach them. So writing the book was the first step. It because it became clear after I had come halfway through the book that it appeared at a level that that people in my position were not supposed to demonstrate. Sally, I'm really interested in what you think Swami Muktananda would think of your decision to leave and your decision to put this book out there. Do you have any thoughts on that? Oh, I think he would have been a hundred percent for it. He's um, he he was the most independent person I ever met. So, as far as you know, as far as he was concerned, um, if you yeah, he would he would have been for it. I had some dreams about him and also about his successor, which were quite encouraging. <laughs> So that must be nice to know that you've got your guru's backing. That's fantastic. Now, a lot lot of women listening to this podcast, Sally, aren't going to be able to relate to community life in an ashram. Um, But part of this podcast, part of the reason this podcast is for women to share their wisdom through their greatest life challenges. So have you got any wisdom that might be universally relatable to women of uh, your age? So you were 60 when you made this decision who are thinking of, you know, radically changing their lives? Well, my, you know, what I believed at the time was that what I was doing was an absolutely parallel experience to women who got divorced, women who's lost their jobs, women whose kids grew up and got, you know, losing your community, your house. It was, that's what it was like. It was like a full, like your entire life burns down. Right. And, and if you've ever got, if you if you've ever been, for instance, in a long marriage, you know that you don't just break out of it. You prepare for it. You make it as as friendly as possible, and 
and you get the support you need for the next phase if you can get it. Uh, and you, you know, and you give yourself, you realize that though you have to hit the ground running, if you're like most of us, that you, you actually need to step by step, figure out a plan for financially supporting yourself. I think most women in that situation, in a, you know, in a so-called normal situation would do, would do really well to spend some time. Let's say you're leaving a marriage or you're leaving a job. Would they be do really well to spend some time either re-educating themselves if that's what they need to do or deepening their skills in a particular field so that when you do step out, there's a confidence that you can do it. And, you know, I, I, I honestly have to tell you, I'm basically speaking to, to middle-class white women. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I do not consider myself uh, qualified to speak to the issues of, of, you know, women in more difficult, more struggling economic situations. But it's really all about preparation and step-by-step. But the thing that allows you to do it when push comes to shove, you have to have a center. Yes. You yes. have to have a feeling that you, of what you are beyond your role, right, behind your income, behind your, your friends, behind your life. So if leaving your husband um, or leaving your job means leaving your world, which it often does, you, you know that you, that you are intact. You know, and you will always be intact because what you are is is the self. What you are is the awareness that's at the heart of you. I was going to say that is just such beautiful advice to find your centre. And if there's women listening to this now thinking, not quite sure how to do that, then this leads us perfectly onto your book, doesn't it? Meditation for the love of it, because that whole book is about about that very subject, finding yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but... You know that most meditation these days is focused on is mindfulness style meditation, which is fabulous. But there, there is not, as far as I've been able to tell, particular emphasis on on really exploring that in you, which is not changed by your circumstances. You know, it's uh, it, that's considered a sort of advanced teaching. But the thing, I, the thing I love about the, the Hindu-based teachings, is that at, from the beginning, you know, you're, you're asked to meditate on your immortal self. And then it becomes a question of, okay, how do I do that? How do I find that? So if you can begin by following the breath and deepening the breath and being very focused on deepening the breath, at some point, you have to start asking yourself the question, what am I really? Who am I really? You know, what is it that doesn't leave when I'm in a bad mood? What is it that's aware that I'm having a terrible time right now? Or what is it that's aware that I love this person so much that, you know, there's always that possibility to, to, to take the backward step and become aware of what's, what's holding and knowing your life experience and between the breath and awareness uh you're in your center yeah, yeah i think yeah. i went i think i went there just you describing it there but this book sally i have to say meditation for the love of it i actually feel 
It's so cleverly written and in parts so complex, but at the same time, it's so simple and easy to understand. And I also really truly believe, and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, I really believe it's got transmissions in it because I've been reading it, I've been doing the exercises, it's been by my bed and my dreams have changed, my meditations have changed. Uh, so are there transmissions in that book as well as as well as words? Totally. I, you know, I, meditation teaching, real meditation teaching happens by transmission. Even though the, the instructions, the protocols are great and important, but it's the energy that comes through it that that makes a difference. So yeah, there's there's definitely transmissions in that book. I feel that that book holds the energy of my lineage, which is one of the most powerful enlightened lineages ever. Well, like I say, um, my dreams have changed, my meditations have changed, Hindu kind of gods and goddess names have been coming to me, and I haven't met you personally one-to-one. Obviously, we've spoken on, on Skype, but you were in my dreams, and you know, how does that happen if there aren't transmissions in a book? So I would strongly recommend people really hunt out this book meditation for the love of it by sally kempton and i also want to we're running out of time sally but i must mention awakening shakti as well i'm really taking my time with this book you suggest that people take their time with this book but again this is so cleverly written so simple and at the same time it feels really familiar too can you give us a very quick outline of the the book what it is what you're trying to do with it well, the original impulse was a Jean Shinoda Bolin book about the Hindu goddesses. But but what's, you know, and I did a lot of research on it, on the different goddesses, but the, my insight was that two things. One, <clears throat> talking about transmissions, that if you know how to invoke the presence of these deity figures, because the Hindu goddesses are fully alive, I mean, there are millions of people who, who invoke those goddesses, you know, the goddess tradition in India is not, it's not a dead tradition like the Greek gods. So anytime you invoke Durga, you know, or Ram for that matter, one of the male deities, you're going to receive something, you're going to receive grace from them. And, and that's, I think, what, one of the gifts of that book, it, it, it does transmit grace. Uh, but the other thing is that I, I would say the recognition that I had as I was working on each one of these is that every one of us carries the archetypes, the goddess personalities within us, usually in combination, but some of us very strongly one or the other. And I wanted to give women, uh, men like it too, but essentially it was written for women, a, a recognition that they're, you know, that what it is to have Kali inside you, what it is to have Lakshmi inside you, that these are the qualities that you can recognize. And these are the practices you can do, not only to in, to invoke these deities as outside helper figures, but also to find them in your own self. Oh my goodness, that's beautifully said. Um, I'm reading this from Awakening Shakti now, but I just think it's a brilliant description of what your book does. It says, uh, connecting with the goddesses can untangle psychic knots, call forth transformative powers, cleanse our mental and emotional bodies, put us in touch with the protective powers within and deeply change the way we see the world. It can shift the way we see ourselves by honing in on aspects of our life force energy that we may never have understood or owned before. They help us work with the hidden and secret forces at play in our lives. If um, 
the conversation I'm having with Sally now, if perhaps it's so brand new to you um, and you're not even aware of names like Carly or, or Durga, then please check out this book by Sally as well. It's called Awakening Shakti. What I'm going to do is write two reviews um, about Sally's book and I'll put them in the show notes of this podcast for you to look at once you finish listening to our podcast. Sally, it's been such an honour speaking to you today. Before you go, I ask three quick questions at the end of these podcasts to all of my guests and I wanted to ask them to you too, so I hope that's okay. Okay, so the first question is... um, who has been the most influential male figure in your life? And the reason I ask this question is uh, there can't be feminine without the masculine. There can't be masculine without the feminine. And this podcast is called Wise Women, but I really wanted it to have a masculine presence as well. So that's why I'm asking this question. And I'm really interested in your answer. Who is um, your most influential male mentor? Well, my guru, of course. Yes. Uh, but I always had male mentors. So, uh, so there have been a, quite a few of them. And um, would you agree with me, Sally, that uh, it's really important if you're going to have conversations about the sacred feminine or the divine feminine or ancient feminine wisdom, that the divine masculine is included in those decisions because you can't have one without the other, can you? You can't. hundred percent you can't. I mean, I, for me, it would be ideal to have a, to have a shiver to my shakti. <laughs> <laughs> it hasn't really worked out that way for me. What a great way of putting it, a shiver to my shakti. Yeah. I, I think that you can't really have the divine masculine and divine feminine in partnership until, the, until women are fully liberated. And, you know, and, and, you know, maybe not enlightened, but women have to really be clear about our own, our own strength, our own power, our own path. Because otherwise we will either default to men, you know, we'll, as women have historically done, or else we'll be furious. So it'll be the gender wars like we're having them now. So, you know, the first step, unfortunately, women, women need to do this. And, um, and because of the historical rage and the male understanding, it's a messy process. Mm, It really is. It is at the moment. Okay, so the next question I wanted to ask you was about, well, it's actually for your, this could be difficult because I know how many quotes you've included in your book, but it's for your favorite quote or at least words of wisdom that somebody's given you that you've never forgotten. Whoa. Um, All right. So this is from Yeats, William Butler Yeats, the English poet, which is kind of a good, it's a good statement for people of my stage of life. It goes like this. When such as I cast out remorse, so greatest sweetness fills my breast. We can laugh and we can sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. I think that's kind of the last word on certain subjects. (laughs) Perfectly timed, I think. And um, yeah, brilliant. And the last question is for a song that sums up your experience. So it can be a song about what we've talked about today or just a song that's really meaningful for you. What would be what would be your song? You mean pop song? Well, it could be anything. It could even be a mantra or just some piece of music that really sums up what we've been discussing. 
Well, it's, at, in terms of spiritual music, what I'm listening to now and have listened to for years is a, a, is a chant by a Tibetan Lama called Lama Gyurme on a record called The Lama's Chant with a French keyboard player. It's called um, Hope for Enlightenment. I recommend it to anybody. And uh, the one that that was really one of the, you know, the deepest songs of my of my transition was uh, by the Grateful Dead. It's you know the famous song Ripple, if you know that one. Yes. This, well, this is the one you talk about when you were uh, taking this acid. This is what you're listening to, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Find it. You'll love it. Brilliant. I will. Fantastic. Sally, thank you for all of your time today and your answers. I'm actually holding my hands in the prayer position and just saying thank you very much for today. Well, thank you, sweetheart, and thank you for all the work you do. It's, it's a beautiful a beautiful platform you set up for people. So blessings and huge grace as you proceed. That was Sally Kempton talking to me on Wise Women this time. Don't forget to check out Sally's show notes on the website, www.wisewomen.org.uk, and wise is spelt with a Y. Next time, I'll be speaking to Jojo Mater about the wisdom she found in the sudden passing of her close friend, Polly Higgins. Polly was a successful lawyer who abandoned a courtroom career to represent Mother Earth and who the Guardian newspaper called one of the most inspiring figures in the Green Movement. Of course, I talked to Jojo about Polly's Stop Ecocide campaign, but Jojo also talks about how she's coped personally with her own grief after Polly's death. The show notes for Jojo's episode will be available on the next new moon, and you can listen to Jojo's episode in full on the next full moon. So thanks so much for listening. If you've enjoyed these conversations in any way, please leave your reviews on Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow Wise Women on Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next time.